how long was I on mute for? Just just that last bit? Two sentences. Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time-poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Amy Tinker. Hi, Amy, how are you? Hi, how are you doing? I'm great, thanks. It's great to have you here. Our focus for this episode, as we promised uh, lots of our listeners just at the start of the year, was going to be small schools and perhaps best practice within the, those kind of settings. But I think it makes sense, Amy, for this your first time on the podcast. Would you mind introducing yourself and sort of explaining who you are and where you're from? Yeah, sure. So thank you so much for having me. It's super exciting to be here. So um, my background is that at the moment I am um, school improvements uh, partner at the Diocese of Coventry, Matt. Um, and I'm also president-elect of the Charter College of Teaching at the moment, which is terrifying. I've got no idea how to be a president, but I'm sure I'll be able to work that out at some point. Um, but my background is very much in leadership in small schools. So for eight years, I was head of school in a very small school in rural Derbyshire. Um, we had anything ranging from 28, I think was the lowest number of pupils we had, up to about 60 pupils. Um, and during my headship, I also taught uh, in a class that was reception, year one and year two. And sometimes we added some year threes and fours in there. Um, so that was challenging and brilliant. Um, and I'm a great advocate for what small schools can be and what they are and what they can offer to pupils and the experience that children can have in those schools but also um, keen that people understand that they can be different, they're different to work in, um, things are different, the curriculum has to run differently, in fact everything probably has to run differently, um, and they're a different place to um, have your primary education as a child as well. So that's my background and I'm thrilled to be here, thanks for having me. Excellent, and what a background it is too, I mean headship in a small school I can imagine is can be quite I think headship's lonely in general, but quite intense. Um, I've certainly seen head teachers trying to balance budgets and things like that there. Were there any, you're, when you moved to Multi-Academy Trust, did you find it a culture shock or was it very much a case of, you know, business as usual, you can use that experience to your benefit? Right. So um, in uh, in our current mats, um, it's not the mat that I was the head of. Um, there are a collection of schools of different sizes and a few of them are really small. Um, and I think it's really great to be able to bring the knowledge of what it is like being a leader in one of those small schools with me to that job, um, because for sure it is intense is exactly the right word. So everything that um, a head would struggle with in a bigger school is still a struggle in a small school. Plus the fact that you probably don't have a senior leadership team, um, you almost certainly don't have a deputy, you may well be teaching a big chunk of the week. Um, so all of those things make life a little bit more complex. That said, you have probably a, quite a small group of children and there's a bit of discussion around what actually is the definition of what a small school is, um, but you probably don't have that many children so you know them really well and you probably know their families really well and inside out as well. So there are huge benefits to that, um, but I'd say intense is exactly the right word. So. It was great to be able to bring that knowledge with me to my current role. Um, but then at the end of the day, great teaching is great teaching and great, you know, great learning is great learning. So so those things are pretty much standard across the board. Is is the government position anything with below 150 students? I think I read that somewhere recently. 
Right. So it depends on who you talk to. Um, so there's a different variation depending on, you know, who you're talking to and what they're trying to achieve. But yeah, I th I'd say we think about under 150 and mixed age classes generally. Um, although, of course, some schools choose to have mixed age classes for other reasons. But where you're forced into mixed age classes, I think there's a new level of complexity that's that's brought in at that point. What are the what are the biggest issues facing small schools in 2024? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, and like I alluded to, all of the same issues that schools are facing everywhere are obviously still an issue in small schools. So things like, um, you know, budget. Budget is difficult for everybody at the moment. What that would look like in a small school is that you worry about one pupil leaving. You know, every one pupil, if they make up, you know, quite a large percentage of your pupil population, it is a worry. Um, so that that's that's there all the time for small schools, kind of trying to find ways to attract new pupils and um, bring new families in. And, you know, particularly if you're in a rural area where you really might just be in a village, that might be the, the sum of your catchment. Um, the school that I was ahead of, quite a lot of the catchment houses, lovely village, um, were now holiday cottages. And so then, you know, there was always the thing about, are we attracting families? Um, how can we get people into our well, bombs on our seats, basically. So that's the thing. You know, it's intensified in small schools. Workload is another one. Workload is an issue across the profession. Um, but if you think from a small school perspective, how that happens. So in my school, there was me. I was the teacher and the head of school. And then there was one more teacher. Um, and we had some teaching assistants and some part-time office, um, office support. And the rest of the time, um, you know, we did everything. We did dinner duty and parents evening and Senko work and all of those sort of things so workload is real and and huge across the profession and we really have as a profession got to think carefully about how we're going to manage that but again it's an, another thing that's intensified in small schools um, and it's, it sounds like it's all bad and it's not all bad because if you're doing all the jobs you can make things happen really quickly so you know we might have had an idea overnight thought of something that would be really great for our pupils and been able to implement it later that week or you know another example might have been we were learning about something particular um, we could put one of our classes in three cars and take them to the aquarium or to the wherever so there are definite benefits um, but yeah I'd say all the issues that are happening in the profession at the moment that are kind of across the board are intensified in a small school. Yeah, I mean, as you're speaking, I'm just remembering back to my first school and I think every child was worth something like 3.7% in the SATs. You know, this is back when right. SATs were part of your Ofsted judgment, that kind of thing. Yeah. But like the, the workload stuff, I mean, whenever they sort of the raised or changing expectations on subject leadership came into place, you know, in principle, yeah, I think subject leaders should be this driving force. But in, I'm assuming in a small school, if that's one person and they've got right. the, the better part of six or seven subjects, that's nigh on impossible, do you reckon? Right. Really, really difficult. Um, so the theory behind subject leadership, you know, subject leaders driving their subjects forward as advocates for their subject is a great one. And we've seen it work brilliantly well um, in lots of big schools. Um, but in a small school, yes, if you've got multiple hats, if you particularly if you're a standalone school on your own and you're trying to split up the subjects in some kind of creative way between everybody, 
um, knowing that, you know, somebody's going to have to do the deep dives in these subjects and we have to make sure these subjects are really good for our kids, then it, it can be really tricky. And there's some really creative things that people are doing to try and mitigate that kind of that level of, of workload, I guess. So um, lots of schools, the school that I was part of eventually was a federation of four. So we shared subject leadership across the four, a little bit like you might do in trust, which was great because it meant that you didn't have three or four subjects to lead, but it did mean that somebody who wasn't in your school led the subject. Um, and so they would all turn up for each other's deep dives. And it is a, probably a benefit of being in maths that, um, you know, somebody can come and help you with that deep dive or as long as they understand your curriculum and you're working together. So that's probably a benefit for small schools, but equally schools that are standalone, um, I've thought of some creative ways of doing it. So for example, having a subject team or, we've got two staff, so we're all in charge of all subjects and we'll all come into all deep dives, which in itself is di difficult because I wonder who's teaching the children at that point. Um, <laughs> but so there's creative ways around it, but yeah, for sure it takes, when something happens like the the new, uh, well, not so now, not so new, the current education um, offset framework, when something happens like that, there are knock-on effects everywhere but particularly in small schools that take some really careful thinking about the model cannot be the same. The expectation of a great education for the children in those schools remains the same, but the way that we get there might have to be a bit different. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a bit of a theme. We've got this vision for the general approach, but SEND, small schools, and I'm sure there are other groups within that too. Um, it's almost as if we're retroactively trying to you know, trying to retroactively fit this uh, this model, and yeah, you're right. I think uh, we we can still have the high, the same high expectations and the same outcomes for our pupils. It, it just takes some more thinking. And right. I mean, it it sounds like you're going a long way to drive that thinking on a on a governmental level. And um, so I'm really interested to sort of capture your thoughts. I think it'd be really interesting to know how you think small schools should approach teaching and learning in those mixed age classes you talked about? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And if I had the absolute definitive answer to it, I'm sure I could be a millionaire by now. Um, but I think the thing to think about here is context is completely key. So I quite often, not so much now, but really when the frame, current framework was introduced, I got a lot of emails from people saying, I'm really stuck how to do this in a small school. I can't make the curriculum work in the way that I, I'm perceiving that Offset want it to be, um, which was really difficult. And there is no answer. And we could just reflect on, you know, the, the most challenging of those circumstances is a school that's a small school with mixed age classes, but the class mix changes every year. So they might have three, four, one year, but next year it might have to be three, four, five you know, and that changes and it has an implication for the curriculum every time. You know, to start off with, I think people were understanding what makes a good curriculum and how knowledge builds over time and how to sequence a curriculum and then just kind of astounded with or flabbergasted about how this could work in a small school. And I think as we've kind of discussed this a lot and thought about it more deeply and really considered what it is we're trying to achieve with any curricula, but a curricula in a small school specifically, it's become a bit more clear that we need to think about the curriculum in terms of the endpoints like everybody else does, but perhaps our endpoints are across a phase or are across, you know, two year groups or 
you know, something something that's slightly different. And then how can we build towards those endpoints? And that will look different in every school. Um, so how they organise and structure the sequence of their curriculum will be really different. So there's not really an answer to give to everybody. Um, I think what's important, and we've kind of realised this over time, is those key kind of threshold concepts and how they build up over time is something that you've got to be really um, prescriptive or, you know, really knowledgeable about in a small school so you can see how that builds up and the journey of education for a child in your school um, kind of develops over time. But then how that looks in the classroom is another complexity because different subjects are different. So, for example, maths, if you take maths, you know, there are definitely things in maths you've got to learn before you can learn the next thing. It's very progressive step by step. But if you've got three, four, five and six in your class all together, how can you make sure that everybody is at the step they need to be and is getting the next bit? And that's where kind of creative teaching has to come in. And, and you know, there are all sorts of things that are happening like um in some schools teachers teachers are delivering a bit tas are delivering at the same time that sometimes has to happen and a great expectation on on the tas and all of their skills in in small schools or it could be you know the teacher's got some on the carpet or they're working with some children they send them away in waves that sometimes happens and it's just it's looking at things flexibly all the time and never thinking you're done because everything could change at any moment. You could lose all the children in one year group if you've got two year twos and they move out of area. Um, you've got no year two, so you've got to think again about how you're going to deliver it, what your curriculum looks like. So it's really complex. If if I've got a mixed age class, is my planning automatically doubled or perhaps tripled? You know, like if, you, if we take maths as an example, I can't necessarily teach year three and year five the same mathematical ideas does that mean i as a as a mixed age class teacher i'm gonna to have to do more work on the sort of front end before i get to the even get to the classroom so i don't want to say yes to that because i don't want to put anybody off from teaching in a mixed age class or in schools that are small because they can be brilliant places to work but the reality is that sometimes yes it does mean that you have to plan double if you're if you're splitting the class or you, you know whatever whatever scenario you've got in your school for some subjects. So there are some subjects that are kind of more progressive. They still need specific things teaching, but can be applied in a context um, that's more general. So writing is a better example of that. So there might be specific things that children need to learn in terms of sentence structure and gram grammatical things, but then we could all be doing a similar piece of writing, but that's really skillful for the teacher to understand how that develops. Um, and, and what that would look like over time. The flip side of that is, um, I think that as a teacher in a small school, if you're teaching multiple year classes, you get such a deep understanding of the curriculum. Um, and so you can really easily and clearly see where your children are going and where they've come from. And that perhaps is not something that happens as easily if you teach, say, year three every year for five years. Um, so all of the teachers that moved on from um, the school that I was the head of school of all went on senior leadership positions because they have that depth of knowledge, not only in terms of curriculum, but also in terms of all the other things that you do in a school, because there's no senior leadership team. So we all do all the jobs. If there were a way for it not to be as much work, then, you know, I would love to know about it because I think yeah, that'll probably be one of the things that plays on a lot of people's minds. I mean, and I think you're right. There's definitely a group of subjects where like writing were the feedback you give is iterative as opposed to totally isolated. You know, I'm thinking of PE, 
a lot yeah. of parallels with how you would coach in PE, perhaps art lessons as well. Um, you, know, you may need some discrete sort of skill teaching, but equally, on a, if everyone in your class is working on a final piece, you know, so it's almost like you're, you can group, I mean, maybe you mentioned this last time, you can group your subjects into those which are iterative and those which are sort of more hierarchical in nature. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And there's, there's definitely something about resources. So, you know, there are increasingly great resources out there that will save teacher workload and we can kind of feel confident to rely on. Maybe in the past, it was a bit like you you didn't really choose any resources, you invented your own. And we've kind of come around to the idea that that, on the whole, is not a good idea for anybody's workload. And there are good resources out there. The, the problem for mixed age classes, obviously, is that they're often written for one year group and sometimes actually two, sometimes two. But that doesn't mean that we you, we can't use them. And you're quite right. You know, textbooks in things like maths might be helpful. And sometimes we have to be a bit brave and, and think we're going to look what's out there and spend some time looking at that. Could Is this the best way to support our children? And again, it's about endpoints. Where are we trying to get to? What's the best way we can get our children to those endpoints, ready for the next bit of their education, secondary or, or key stage two or wherever they're moving to? And what can we what can we do within our gift to make that work? Um, and sometimes it has to be creative. And actually, offset a you know more understanding of the fact that that needs to be creative now. Um, it won't just look the same in every school. Yeah, I mean, I think you know we. There is no one answer, but it's very clear from what you're saying is that it, it comes down to thinking, you know, time spent thinking. It's almost if school leaders can make time for their teachers to think and if they make time for themselves to think in a situation where they're also lead subjects, I think that is a big part of the puzzle. Does the size of the school impact on pedagogy at all? That's a really good question and one that I get asked quite a lot. And I think... I don't know what the right answer to that question, but I can tell you what I think. Um, so my feelings around that is good teaching is good teaching. And all of the things that we know or increasingly know about how children learn and how to get children to remember the things that we need them to remember, um, how schema develop and all that kind of thing that we we think, you know, and we know at the moment um, is the same no matter where the child is sat in a big school or they sat in a small school. The reality of how that looks in the classroom, again, is more complex. So if you're thinking, if you take a really tiny bit of it, for example, um, retrieval practice or you know, activating prior learning or, you know, whatever, whatever you're doing is to start off your lesson. That's quite complex in itself because you might have if you if you're thinking about the three, four, five, six class that we've talked about, you might have children who've been with you for three years. They're in your current year five. The others have been in there. They've only just started with you. They're in your current year three and the prior knowledge is different. And what you want to retrieve from those children is different. So that's complex in itself. But it comes back to knowing the whole curriculum and where it goes for different children and where you're trying to get them to, I guess. So I think I feel pretty strongly that good teaching is good teaching. That's that's that. Um, but how we approach that, again, has to maybe be a bit different. So if you're. Exploring CPD, you're exploring the same things you would be in a in a primary school as you would be in a, or in a in a two form entry school. Is CPD as easy to access for small schools? Because obviously you've mentioned budgeting is a concern. Well, what are the options to small schools when it comes to sort of continuous professional development? So in terms of 
budget and getting people out of class is difficult everywhere. Um, you know, and I'm not suggesting that it's it's easy in big schools either. Um, but certainly releasing people out of class to go and do things when they are half of the teaching staff and they also do a lot of the other jobs that happen in a school in a day can be really challenging. And budget, of course, is really challenging for everybody, particularly challenging for a small school. So a sense of that might be if your school have put aside, I don't know, £500 for CPD, that might be quite a significant bit of the money you've got left after you've paid all your staff, but it's really nothing, is it, in terms of going on a course? So, yes, there is there is some challenges around getting people out to go on courses and therefore hear the things that they need to, you know, enthuse them and bring on their practice and develop them as teachers, but also improve things for, for their children in their class. On the horizon, there's something called the Great Big Small School Inset Day, and I know you've been central to this. For anyone who's interested in listening, think, oh, that's, that sounds uh, that sounds interesting. What would you say to them about it? How would you describe it? So this is really exciting. It's a really exciting project. So this is definitely a watch this space. So because of the challenges um, that we've seen, and I, I hear about regularly from small school colleagues about um Kind of keeping up to date with the latest thinking, um, hearing the interesting people who are out there, you know, um, just really good CPD for, for small school colleagues. Um, I was approached by a friend of mine who's a, got a mat in Cornwall with lots of small schools and he said, you know, let's let's put on a, an inset day for all small schools. And we did, we have to say, we did start off with the idea of, yeah, that'd be brilliant. Let's do it face to face, which lasted approximately two minutes because we realised that um, obviously the schools are all spread across the country um, and a lot of them actually fairly geographically isolated areas. But we really, really wanted to do something to um, kind of put together an offer that was understanding of all the things that we've just talked about at small schools, but also understanding of the fact that Teachers need great CPD, great CPD about how children learn and how to develop things for, for our classes is just great CPD. And so we wanted to put on something uh, that would help with that. So we came up with the idea um, of the Great Big Small Schools Inset Day, which is going to take place on the 6th of January 2025. We're planning ahead to allow schools to actually put their inset day on that day. It's going to be online um, and we've got the Charter College involved and the Church of England um, because they've got the power to organise things and to host the platforms. Um, so they're helping us along with that. And we're going to invite a collection of really interesting speakers um, in a kind of research ed, but online way so that small school colleagues can access the things that um, perhaps, you know, might be more accessible to schools that are in in, in different circumstances, I guess. In your mind, it'd be a case of schools log on in the hall and have it up on the board or at home, you know, take the, take the 6th of January as a home day, but you've got all this high quality CPD all day. I like the idea of a home day, but I think that would be for schools to decide. But we're hoping there'll be a menu of things so that people can choose um, what is relevant to them and to their school. And we, you know, we're very conscious. You might have some great ideas here, Kira, and we're very conscious about not making it like watching the telly, like watching education telly all day. Um, so we're going to put in some interactive elements and some bits and pieces, but um, that's still a work in progress. But our big aim is to get get out there really good quality uh, thinking and you know things that will make people think about their practice and how they can improve it but with a small school lens nice and will anybody be able to join in or will you just focus on small schools 
that's a good question I'm not sure we can tell whether schools are small or not and I think you know maybe anybody will be able to join in but we're definitely going to come at it with a lens of we understand what it's like working in a small school being a pupil in a small school we understand how it can be brilliant but we also understand what the challenges are can't imagine anyone's going to go through IP addresses oh yeah this is in Buckinghamshire yeah there must be a small school so. <laughs> no definitely <laughs> not <laughs> Nice. So um, it's just a case then of keep an eye out for developments as they come. Is there a Twitter handle or anything out there or just follow yourself on Twitter? Yeah, if you can, if anybody who's interested in Keen, we are in the process of releasing some comms. Um, but if anybody who's interested in Keen follows me on Twitter or finds me on Twitter, I will definitely take a note of your email address and make sure you're kept up to date um, with, well, developments as they happen. I mean, I'll make sure I title obviously will be tagged whenever I announce yeah. this episode on, on the on the Saturday. So uh, yeah, so anyone do get in touch. And um, I mean, it sounds really exciting. I mean, I think, you know, CPD for small schools is something that preoccupies me and thinking, you know, how can I support with this, you know, and but um, and, you know, how can we make sure that, you know, schools get the highest quality professional development, no matter where they are in the in the country. I think it's yeah, really worthwhile. And uh, I'm very excited to see how it turns out into that base here, or anything you need. I mean, my questions are all tended by my experience, what I'm thinking about it at the moment. Is there anything you'd want to share with those who are in small schools and you think this is a bit of knowledge that you've garnered over time that you think actually, yeah, this is, you need to know this and I'd like to share it as widely as possible. That is a really good question, which I was entirely unprepared for. Um, is there a piece of knowledge that I'd like to share with them? I think, I think they're doing a great job actually. And I think that, um, small schools everywhere really grappling with some really difficult and complicated issues and um, you know it's hard things are brilliant in small schools because of your community and because of the kind of family but there are some really tricky things um, to think about particularly when there's a policy change or you know there's a shift in the Ofsted framework or something like that makes it quite hard um, so I don't have an answer but what I do have is um, the top tip, which is to collaborate with others, and however that can be, if it's formally or informally, um, I run a WhatsApp group. Again, if anybody's welcome, anybody's welcome to join it. If anybody wants to, just get hold of me on Twitter. Um, and it's full of small school leaders and teachers who are all supporting each other because they're all in different contexts, but they all understand. Um, and it's a great source of support for lots of people about all sorts of quirky things. You know, sometimes it's curriculum, sometimes it's you know, some kind of issue that's happened sometimes it's a tree's blown down on my lane or as a sheep escaped or you know that kind of thing so i would definitely say if you're out there and you're on your own there are other schools that are like yours the context might be slightly different but collaborating um is definitely the way forward awesome see i, I never would have thought of that so that's why i had to ask uh, sorry for blindsiding but i had to ask an open-ended question in case there's anything i was missing it is how can we support each other isn't it um, and WhatsApp groups. I mean, most of my WhatsApp groups deteriorate after a short amount of time, but it'd be great. That could happen. They very well behave, the small school WhatsApp group. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, I mean, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Hopefully, I mean, it's been a while since Amy Bills has been on the pod. So hopefully you and Amy will join me for some, uh, for some, maybe some large scale leadership conversations. You know, That'd be great. All set to do is say thank you very much. Thank you very much for joining me and me. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great to chat to you. And everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening.